You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. It's being called the nation's largest oil export terminal. It's here in Texas. The Biden administration reportedly giving the green light for this new terminal. And my expert and my buddy in all things and when it comes to oil and gas is Tim Snyder from MatadorEconomics.com. How was your Thanksgiving, pal? How'd you do? Well, it was wonderful. We had a great time. It was it was as soggy as it could be. We had over <laughs> two and a half inches of rain that day, but but hey, it didn't dampen our spirits. We put a, a tarp over the smoker and got the turkeys cooked, and boy, we had a great time. And of course, the Cowboys won. Sure, I'm sure the turkey and stuffing went down real well, real good. Right. As, as a result of that. All right. So tell me more about this. Uh, what's being called the nation's largest oil export terminal that uh, that's been given the green light. It's where is it? Uh, you know, I don't. When I hear export in a time when we need energy, it, it really right. doesn't make much sense. But explain to me how all this works in oil and gas. Well, it, it's it's craziness right now. Large, currently the largest terminal, uh, exporting terminal we have in the United States is the Moda term, Terminal down in Ingleside, which is Corpus Christi, Port of Corpus Christi. Um, and it does. It can. It can um, move 1.6 million barrels of crude oil um, from that facility daily. This new facility will do in the neighborhood of two million barrels uh, of um, uh, crude oil daily. That's going to be near Freeport um, with a uh, pipeline leg that goes 50 miles out into the Gulf of, Mer- of, of Mexico. So they can uh, load the what's called VLCCs, the very large crude carriers. Um, it is making people scratch their heads this morning, Sergio, because it goes counter to everything the Biden administration says. Until you start to drill in just a little bit deeper to what their motives are, and as we continue to to empty the strategic petroleum reserves, and we continue to entice or or, or you know facilitate the export of crude oil. I mean, last week we exported uh, 4.2 million barrels of uh, crude oil per day from the United States. Um, And that's, of course, in a number of different terminals. Uh, The fact still remains that it looks like what we're doing is emptying all the the crude oil terminals that we have, or the, the storage that we have, and then having no other means uh, here within the United States to replace that especially when you see that the U.S. just granted Chevron, I'll give you a a kicker here, granted Chevron a permit to drill uh, for drilling operations in, hold your hat, Venezuela. Thank goodness. Biden's still tapping the nation's reserves. We're about two, three weeks removed from the last time we heard about that. Is that still happening? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, it is, and I would imagine it'll go into the new year because they've not they've not reached that 180 million barrel uh, goal that they had, plus the the uh, one tranche of 50 and one tranche of 30 after that. So he's got a long way to go in that. We're not going to see we're going to see inventories in the strategic petroleum reserves probably in the neighborhood of of the upper 200 thousands uh, when he finishes his program, and and this all is once again couched in a national security scenario that makes people very nervous in this country because our military infrastructure doesn't run on uh, batteries. You can't just stop at 7-Eleven and pick up a, uh, a package of batteries and pop them in the trunk and figure you're going to get much done out of our military. 
put that in layman's terms, 200,000 plus the the uh, reserve tank at 200,000. How many days is that? What, what is he lowering the reserve down to? Or what are we reaching? Well, we could, you know, uh, we could actually drop um, into the old 10, 15 day um, level within the SPR. Remember, we, we our demand uh, is around 20 million barrels per day, Sergio. So 200 million is 20 is 10 days. So the issue that we have to look at here is what are we doing to reproduce it? Well, we produce it 12.1 million barrels per day. We're having continued pressure here in the United States to produce. So we have to go and find some other source to protect ourselves in the short term. But remember Venezuela, I mean, why drill in Venezuela? Uh, first of all, second of all, why are we not drilling in the United States? Third of all, why is nobody questioning Chevron on this? That's who I want to know what their motives are. Have they been forced into this by the federal government to uh, in appeasement for some other project? I just don't know. Not enough information is out there on this. Tim Snyder, MatadorEconomics.com. I called him today because of this headline that the nation's largest oil export terminal will be setting up shop, has been approved by the Biden White House, Department of Transportation, at Freeport. And I guess they'll be up and running in a couple of years. And you mentioned Ingleside near Corpus still exporting. And it begs the question, I know people are asking this driving around town, why are we exporting when we need oil? We need the energy for us. Why are we exporting? Well, it's interesting because we're not increasing our refining capacity which is where our bottleneck is. Um, we've got production, we've got solid production here in the United States, crude oil production. It, we're only a million barrels a day off of the record high that we had during the Trump administration. So our issue here is refining capacity and there's nothing being done there. The restrictions are still way too high. Um, I do think, however, that um, seeing this approval. This has been a two and a half year approval process, by the way, uh, on the seaport uh, oil terminals, what they're calling it in uh, uh, in Freeport. Um, but I think it also lends itself uh, to the possibility of getting the approvals and all the things that we need to get for the terminal down there in, in the uh, Port of Brownsville and getting that LNG facility start moving forward. Um, I'd like to see that happen. I am a little concerned, however, that if you watch the production, if you just look at the Baker Hughes rig count and watch the the number of of rigs that have been online to produce natural gas versus, you know, over the last really 20 years, um, we're at a very low point. So we need to get our gas production up, our crude, our natural gas production up, and we need to be able to start liquefying this natural gas and use it as a as a fuel source. That, in my mind, would be the better choice than than you know going and picking up Venezuelan crude oil. Who, by the way, Venezuela takes Iranian crude oil into their ports to use their refineries. Um, there's this this is getting to be a really big big mess. Tim Snyder, MatadorEconomics.com. What does your gut tell you? Or some of the scuttlebutt in the industry when it comes to exporting LNG, Brownsville. I know one of the two strong suitors that are hoping to set up shop, they're plowing forward with signing contracts. They're almost getting to the that number uh, in contracts as, as far as export, potential export. 
for them to open up. So what's the latest? When do you think that might open? You know, I would love to see that. I'd like to see a, a, a completion, um, not a completion for construction, but a completion of the development stage uh, announced. I'd, I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to see our initial financing put together. Our, not It's not our, you guys. Uh, initial financing stages in a complete, uh, put together and completed. And then the uh, the actual construction begin uh, construction work begin in earnest. Um, I still think I hate to say this. I still think we're probably two and a half three years away from completion in a project like that. But it will be necessary. I believe it's globally necessary, and it's the right move for the Port of Brownsville. All right, pal. Anything else we need to know in the industry as we're going into this going into December, either price wise or employment-wise activity, what, what else are you seeing? You know, I think uh, I think we're starting to see, and, and matter of fact, we're uh, having, we started uh, this week off after Thanksgiving, a huge down day. We're down 244 in West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's going to do what it does today. But, but I think we're going to continue to follow seasonal patterns. We'll uh, probably be a little bit lower for a couple of weeks before we start seeing gasoline start to turn back up. And, and start to focus on 2013, and that's where we're all focused right now. Is 2013 uh, or 2013, 2023 uh, in our economic cycle? And I was asking about the employment side. That export terminal, Freeport, that should provide plenty of new jobs, at least for Southeast Texas, for a while, in setting up all those tubes and the export material, right? Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, it, it, in, in an article that I read about it, Sergio, it anticipated about 1,500 jobs um, during the construction phase uh, will be generated. That will be hugely beneficial. And about 65 to 70 jobs full-time uh, once they get in operating the terminal and exporting crude oil. Have a great week, pal. Good to talk to you again. Tim Snyder from yes, MatadorEconomics.com. This is The Sergio Show. Tanya J. Powers for Fox News up in New York City, joining us right now. And she has the Merriam-Webster Word of 2022. What is it, T? Good morning. It is gaslighting. That is the word of the <laughs> year from uh, Merriam-Webster, who, you know, chooses this every year. We, we hear of the, you know, words of the year, what, was, what newly was added to the dictionary, things like that. This is their word of the year. Do they celebrate new words that they are putting into the dictionaries or, or just the word of the year? And and what uh, what determines this, by the way? The number of hits online or what? Well, yeah, the new words go in, I think, at a different time of the year. But, okay. yeah, they also add new words to the dictionary every year. Uh, this one is just the word of the year. And they said that there was a an increase in searches for gaslighting by 1,740% over the last year. Manipulating someone to question their own reality. That's the gist of it, right? Gaslighting. For, one, for one's own advantage. Yes. Yeah. Basically, when somebody is, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's used a lot by abusers in relationships. Um, you know, they, it's a psychological manipulation. Yeah. Uh, it happens over an extended period of time. A lot of times it causes the person to, the victim to question their, you know, the validity of their own thoughts, their memories, things like that. Uh, it can lead to loss of confidence and self-esteem, the uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and a dependency on the perpetrator. Like I said, it's 
It's used a lot in uh, abusive relationships by the abuser. Uh, it's also used by politicians, newsmakers. Uh, it uh, can uh. happen in a family unit. It's also a corporate tactic to mislead the public sometimes. Um, it also can happen in a healthcare setting when someone dismisses someone's symptoms or their illness or tells them it's all in your head. This is not really not really happening. But you're like, yeah, no, this is happening. That's that's gaslighting. But in order to get Merriam-Webster's attention, they actually need to sur- see see the word gaslighting in in posts and in a news publications and in opinion pieces. And they write, it, I guess it's the number of times that it hits the radar that helps it become the, the word of the year, right? I mean, yeah. If you look at other words that it beat out, uh, there were other specific, you know, kind of terms that were, you know, came from specific incidents this year. One of those was uh, oligarch. Uh, we've seen that a lot more in the last several years. Um, really since 2016, we've heard the word oligarch way more than we ever did before then. Um, this year, it spiked in interest following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we also, after the Queen died and King Charles was crowned, we also saw a lot of, uh, you know, uh, searches and a lot of questioning about the word Queen, about Camilla's title, which was Queen Consort. So Queen Consort is another one of the, the terms that uh, gaslighting beat out. Uh, codify was also on the list of terms that, you know, were also highly searched. It was driven, of course, by the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, there were several other words that, you know, had a lot of had a lot of traffic, so to speak, but we're, we're not quite as much as gaslighting was. Yeah, when there's open online political verbal um, warfare that we have these days, it doesn't surprise me that that, that makes the, uh, the word of the year. Thank you, T. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News, joining us from New York. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. They have a zero COVID policy in China. They notice COVID in the community, in the neighborhood. They, man, they shut down entire blocks, an entire city, and that shut, will shut down factories as well. In the news these past couple of days, We've been seeing some images online, Twitter, Facebook, people in China throwing video and pictures out of China. The only way they can communicate to the world is the Chinese government isn't going to tell us. But, for example, the, the Foxconn plan, some images coming to us, video coming to us of employees being forced to stay at the plant and keep working to avoid going out into the community and getting becoming COVID positive, thereby shutting down the plant. It's just absolute crazy right now. Let me talk about supply chain with an expert who's looking at all this. Joanne Moretti is a supply chain pro. Let me get a bit of a background, uh, Ms. Joanne, uh, for you. What do you do for a living day to day? Tell people how you watch such supply chain issues. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I um, So I'm at uh, a company called Fictive, and we operate what's called a digital manufacturing ecosystem. And all that means is that we connect manufacturing partners through a cloud so that we can deliver on-demand manufacturing. We've taken a whole different approach to these problems. Uh, this one, as well as, you know, it, it's been a litany of supply chain problems, right? With trade wars starting, you know, 2017 and so forth, um, pandemics, the original pandemics, you know, there's all kinds of trucking protests up in Canada, blocking borders and things, the congested ports, uh, and now this new flurry of, you know, lockdowns and the uh, the anti-lockdown protests that we're seeing in China. Yeah, and that's, so the yeah. supply chains are taking a beating yeah, and that, have been for, you know, the last several years. I've got folks here in South Texas that are involved in economic development, many offices with international trade with Mexico and hearing of all the headlines of the reshore, the, they're bringing back a, a lot of Asian-based manufacturing back either to the U.S. or to Mexico for NAFTA exchange or, or, or Canada. That's one sidebar positive, all those jobs are coming back, but they they can't seem to come back fast enough. Where It seems at this moment we're way too dependent on China, and, and if they continue this zero-COVID policy and shut down cities and factories for 30-plus days, that's going to continue to send negative ripple effects through our economy and the world economy for Lord knows how long? I think the only way to fix this is to bring bring back an X number of jobs to the Western Hemisphere, don't you think? Yes, that's right. I mean, I mean, this again, this is another gut punch, you know, for large hardware companies, but also to your point, the economic impact that it's going to have, right? It just ripples across everything. So yes, the answer is we're seeing, we're definitely seeing this. There's a huge move of companies uh, moving out of China, coming into the U.S., coming into Mexico. But to your point, it's not happening fast enough. And the reason it's not happening fast enough is there's not enough labor, right? There's just not enough labor or there's not enough uh, of the suppliers in place so the supply bed's not there. So it's not going to happen as fast as we hope. And that's why, you know, companies like ours, not just ours, but there's companies like ours that connect manufacturing globally, right? So we go out, we look for manufacturers in the U.S., in India, in Mexico, and, you know, we have some in China as well. Um, and we connect all these manufacturing partners so that we can serve up manufacturing through a cloud, just like you're ordering an Uber, basically. And, and that's brought some relief to uh, to many of these uh, large, what we call OEMs, original equipment manufacturers. It's bringing some relief, but to your point, it's not happening fast enough because unfortunately the people, right, the labor is, is just, it's so difficult to put that in place overnight when it took years and decades to move it out, out of the U.S. Yeah. Imagine trying to bring it all back in. China in COVID zero and how that screws up supply chain issues to this day. Joanne Moretti watching all this. She's a supply chain pro. And do you, th- do you think that India might be a good plan B for now? Or if we can't bring it back to the Western Hemisphere, maybe we should get closer to our friends in India. And they certainly have a big population, some young folks there, and maybe fire up those factories nearby, after all the ships are nearby. Uh, we agree. Uh, India is a wonderful country. Uh, education everywhere. Yeah. Uh, we have recently opened up our facility in India and connecting all kinds of suppliers uh, to that uh, to that hub that we've created in India. 
and uh, we we absolutely agree. I think that the talent is there for sure. The technology is booming there, um, and so uh, we see that as uh, as another major gateway uh, for uh, for our customers. As you speak with colleagues about all this, does the topic of perhaps setting up more manufacturing, light manufacturing, in Central America or in the Americas and in Latin America, is that even a possibility, something that anyone is considering in industry? Because we have a, a big workforce there. If they don't get jobs there, they're going to continue to come here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cross the border illegally. So why not set up in Latin America? There's tons going on in Latin America right now. One of the large companies I can't name, but just recently they moved 400 molds over, 400 molds being injection molding, large tools that help uh, you know, build plastic-type uh, parts and, yeah. and uh, type equipment. And so uh, we're seeing it. It's happening. I would say the last statistic I saw was 85% of large hardware companies are looking, even small and medium, are looking at moving their operations to uh, to Mexico or Excellent. somewhere in Central America. Yeah. So it's definitely the place. Like you said, you noted uh, notably the, the NAFTA agreement. There's no sort of tariffs to, to think about in terms of moving and the logistics and everything else. It's easy. Um, you're not crossing an ocean, so it's much more economical in terms of, uh, you know, shipping and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of benefits to uh, to Central America. And uh, factories that are popping up there are, you know, incredible right now. A pleasure meeting you, Joanne. And we'll call again. Uh, thanks for joining us. Joanne Moretti, Supply Chain Pro. This is The Sergio Show. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. There's a teacher shortage in our country. Adrian Thomas, she has 25 years experience in public education. Appreciate your time today, Miss Abby. Okay. Good morning. So one number I saw reported from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics saying that we have approximately a quarter million, more than a quarter million, fewer school workers January, uh, July 22 this year compared to January of 2020. I mean, that's that's massive. That's like taking the population in my city of Brownsville, my city of McAllen, fusing those, every single man, woman, and child, 270,000 fewer school workers. That sounds, that sounds like a lot, but I'm guessing that in the overall scheme of public education in our country, that's probably just a fraction, but still, that's a lot of people to make up. So what happened, Ms. Adrian? Uh, you know, truly, that's such a loaded question. We could be here all day. I think it's, in my opinion, it's just a compound effect of things that have happened over the last 10 years from extreme behavior, large class sizes, lack of compensation, restructuring of curriculum. But at the end of the day, I really, truly believe if you ask a teacher or an educator or support staff that it's 
the feeling of um, being undervalued, underappreciated, and overburdened. What is the solution for this, aside from just more money? And, and, you know, I would say the compensation is the lowest on the thing. I, Mm. I truly believe that the teachers and support staff, they need to... We need to find a way to appreciate and value to offer the support. You know, as a veteran teacher who has highly qualified in seven states, you appreciate all of the hands on deck who come in there. You know, there are people filling positions who don't have a teaching license, but it truly then overburdens the licensed teachers who are in the classroom because then they're mentoring these new teachers or if you don't have the bus drivers the teachers in some states like in north carolina where i am teachers are driving the buses um you know the clerical staff those responsibilities then filter into the people who are in the building and it creates just this this sense of truly not being able to effectively do your job which is is teach the kids man we have been wrestling with the better education equation, better education formula for generations, probably since the inception of this country or maybe shortly after that. If you had a chance to put in place solutions across the nation, let's say you'd be the emperor for a, a while, Adrian. What, what would you do to, to finally improve education, make education better, and, and draw from everything? Because I know you've got experience in private and public education for more than a quarter century now. What would you do to make things better and improve quality so that we get kids out of high school ready for the workforce or ready for college at a much larger ratio than we have right now? That would be, you know, like a genie in a bottle. (laughs) I honestly would take it back to teacher autonomy in the classroom the giving teachers the professional courtesy and the opportunity to teach the whole child. Um, I have watched over my career as they have taken the social emotional curriculum, the developmentally appropriate curriculum out of primary grades. And it sounds silly and contrived, but when those students at such an early age don't have the ability to learn how to problem solve and connect with their peers and um, be able to communicate their needs effectively, it snowballs into extreme behaviors and students not being able to cope and function. And I think that that is a systemic problem. When we can focus, I would wave my magic wand and put the focus back on the whole child in the classroom because I think we would see that growth and we would see the achievement much more naturally, um, you know, than through all of the testing and the rigor. It truly starts with teaching the whole child from a very early age. You're looking at it from an educator's point of view. Now, for people driving around town listening to the program right now, working for a living, they're looking at it from with concern of all these headlines coming at us really fast that mention the indoctrination of the social reforms, uh, the leftist liberalism, the rewrite of American history, CRT curriculum, retraining and rethink to correct think. Parents don't want that. They've been pushing back violently, and, and we see the biggest political reforms taking place right now at school boards 
across the nation. Now, from that perspective, it's like the I, I and I let you talk. You said give the teacher more autonomy. Yeah, we don't want to give these leftist uh, <laughs> teachers all the autonomy to you know brainwash our kids. I can just. I could just see all these friends wincing I, I, when you said is, that. That is a fair yeah. statement, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know that there is a perfect answer to that, but I know that the complete micromanagement um, of teachers in the classroom, it takes out what we're, what you're, the development of the child. Um, and that really needs to be the focus. Uh, I'm thinking uh, maybe more private schools, home schools, um, vouchers for that. Is that something that you'd consider that would improve education so that we get, as I go back to what I said initially, get them ready for life, get them ready for college, either know how to write a thesis, a, a paper, or or just get get some skills ready to hit the workforce and score start welding stuff or putting together scaffolding or fix engines left and right. Oh, and and I believe that that starts with you know attracting high quality candidates into our education programs as well, um, and really equipping them to be in a classroom. Um, right now, there are a lot of unlicensed educators in the classroom, which bless them for stepping in and it's appreciated but it it creates a lot of other issues too when um you know you have that lack of training what is involved in all this training that i i keep hearing about because i I would love to see retired more retired engineers retired physicians retired nurses uh, retired folks in business and banking to get in there and you know, start molding the future workforce of our country. Get get experts in industry and banking and finance and all sorts of industry. Get them in there as teachers. I'd, I'd love to see something like that. But but then there's, as you mentioned, that issue to be a, a certified teacher. Like, what type of training goes into being a certified teacher, where they can get those skills and go into the classroom and mold these minds, get them ready. And I think that I agree with that. I think that would be incredible, and I think it would make such a huge difference. Um, I think the training comes with not just the content of what um, someone is teaching, but it is the training of interpersonal um, relationships with the students. It is teaching them how to problem solve. There are lots of different um, modalities and things like that to get them to have student discourse, to teach them how to problem solve. And those are the pieces. When you have those experts coming in, if you add those other pieces, it would be an incredible situation. As a 25-year expert of education, both private and public schools, Adrian Thomas, my guest right now, as a 25-plus-year expert in education, would you say that in our country the extracurricular stuff is emphasized just a bit too much? We're giving too much time, too much money to the extracurricular stuff, whether it be all types of sports or the foot, Friday night football program, the millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in financing stadiums. So all the other things that take away from the basic academics to be a good writer, a good reader, and to be able to problem solve math problems and do science. Do you think it takes too much away? We have an overemphasis on extracurriculars? I, you know, I think that if you put the same emphasis on primary education, especially because that creates that foundation, um, then it allows them to 
to partake in the extracurriculars. I think that that is a huge piece because it teaches so much more than just the skill of the sport or whatever they're doing, but it teaches that collaboration and the problem solving and the discipline. Yeah. So I feel like the extracurriculars are super important, but it needs to be an equal balance of importance yeah. um, to the foundation. No, I, I understand. As well. I, and you know what I've noticed with all the extracurricular stuff? It's after school and it's weekends. I think that we need to emphasize don't pass, don't play again, where after school and weekends, extra tutorials, I think, should be should be uh, provided by the school district in order to make sure that all our babies, every single one of them, are up to grade level, especially now post-COVID, where all, a lot of them are still struggling, still trying to climb, claw their way back to get to grade level. Well, I appreciate uh, our conversation, Ms. Adrian, and, and your insight. We'll call you again. 25-year experts in education, Adrian Thomas. This is The Sergio Show. Consumer spending numbers are very strong. Retail numbers are very strong. Seems that perhaps folks are just drowning their economic and personal sorrows and spend, 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 just swiping those credit cards. Going into next year, everybody keeps saying we're going to be in a recession, might be a strong recession for a while. And, of course, the bill comes due then. Some people might be thinking, oh, I'll just declare bankruptcy. So let me bring in a bankruptcy attorney, Reed Allman. Appreciate your time, Reed. How damaging is bankruptcy to a person's credibility, credit, ability to do business in the future once that bankruptcy protection is filed? Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, There's definitely no disputing that a bankruptcy is a negative connotation on your credit. But when you consider the situation most people are in, their credit is already challenged and in a difficult position due to being late on bills, charge off, things like that that are causing them uh, to not be able to make their their payments when they come due. And oftentimes getting all that taken care of can lead to a future more positive credit score sooner than if they hadn't filed bankruptcy. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Do you expect a flood of business as a bankruptcy attorney sometime early next year if, yes, the economy does slam the brakes and because of inflation and all the overspending from this year, and unemployment of next year for uh, some individuals. Do you expect a flood of new business phone calls over at your office? You know, you would. Uh, we think so. I mean, all the indicators seem to be pointing in that direction. However, um, we were thinking the same thing. You know, when when COVID hit, and the opposite happened. We've actually uh, had the bankruptcy filings nationwide have been going down. Hmm. Uh, but it does seem like um, indications are that. Spending is up, debt is up, and it's getting harder for people to meet their obligations as they come due. Do you know what's different now, I think, Reed, is back then during COVID, Uncle Sam came in with her grandkids and great-grandkids money, debt on them. You know, It was debt spending on our part, the government, to send stimulus checks and extended unemployment checks. And there was a, a net there for, and money coming in where, you know, monopoly money, fake money, but it was coming in and helping to pay the bills. I don't see that happening next year with a recession, though. That's why I think some people might find themselves in trouble, financial trouble. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. You know, a lot of you know people were ha- getting that money that they were just, you know, kept printing. And some people think, you know, that's why we have inflation now is because there was so much extra money circulating into the economy to prop it up. And now, it's resulted in inflation and higher prices for everyone. 
when an individual seeks bankruptcy protection, and by the way, my guest now is Reed Allman. He's a bankruptcy attorney. When an individual files for bankruptcy, what cannot be placed under that bankruptcy filing? What, what eventually still needs to be paid on a monthly basis that cannot be um, set aside in bankruptcy? That's a good question. Um, if you have any secured property like a house, a car, things like that that you want to keep and maintain, uh, you'll need to be current on them and, and remain current on them when you file a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Um, a Chapter 13 bankruptcy is a reorganization of payment plan, so if you are behind, um, the Chapter 13 Act can actually help you reorganize that debt and get it paid for so you can maintain that property. So mainly that's what you're looking for is um, maintaining that secured debt so you don't have a repossession or foreclosure. Outside of the attorney expense, is there are there other expenses that an individual can expect to have to pay as a result of that filing? Yes, I mean, there are some small expenses. You have to uh, complete a credit counseling course, which is an online or telephonic course regarding... By court um, order? You know, By court order? You have to do that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. In 2005, when they changed the law, they required those. So those courses are about $25, and they have to do another course after you file before discharge called a debtor education course. Um, so that, the filing fee, the attorney's fees are the typical costs associated with a bankruptcy. And student loans, because that's been punted down the road. In fact, I think the last I heard was they're not going to force people to pay student loans till like summer next year at the earliest. They're not even an issue right now in bankruptcy filings, right? Right. Well, there's some exciting news that just came out a couple weeks ago. You know, you can discharge student loans in bankruptcy if you can prove that it's an undue hardship. And that's what has been difficult for so many years is that according to the case law, it was hard It was hard to prove it for anybody. But the Biden Department of Justice just released new guidance last week saying that they're gonna loosen the strings on that and make it easier for people now to qualify to wipe out the debt in bankruptcy. So we're really excited about that development. All right, anything else that folks need to know about bankruptcy filing that's very common and, you know, people should know about tuning in right now. I think don't let the shame or embarrassment of the situation stop you from getting the information um, because you need to be able to make informed decisions, um, know how bankruptcy could help you, and then make a decision if you want to file because, you know, corporations and, and other big companies have no problem reorganizing a bankruptcy, but individuals for some time, sometimes put it off too long and liquidate property and retirement accounts and things like that I that see. they could keep if they just spoke to the bankruptcy attorney. Before you start selling stuff off, start doing it to me. Okay, I got you. Thank you, Rita. Thank you for your, your advice. Reed Allman, bankruptcy attorney. This is The Sergio Show. Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Got some good news for you. If you'd like to help your grandkids, maybe take some of that hard-earned money, hard-earned savings cash, and maybe help your kids pay for their education, pay pay for their college. There's a report says that that the floodgates have been open for uh, grandma, grandpa to supersize the college savings for the grandkids. So let me bring in a money expert, money manager expert, Ed the Big Butowski. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, pal. So what is this good news for grandparents? What what, what happened to open up the floodgates so that we can give? Well, I don't say we. I'm not a grandparent yet, but we can you know eventually give our grandkids lots of money for for college. Yeah. So you could always give money, but what it did up until recently was it disrupted your ability to get financial aid if you were getting money from your grandparents. So now the rules have changed where it does not hinder your ability to get financial aid. So grandparents can open up 529 plans and not interrupt the ability for them to get loans from the federal government. Excellent. So do you see a, a flood then of, of grandparents as the news, the news gets out of them staking some of those assets and these 529 college savings plans because they know that the kids can still get assistance, other assistance? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a floodgate. Um, I, I think that grandparents were giving money anyway. Um, and I don't know how many people have 529 plans that also are getting financial aid. Um, I would think that if you're getting financial aid, you probably don't have a 529 plan. Uh, but this does absolutely make it easier for them to get financial aid uh, while having a 529 plan. And by the way, it's not just for grandparents. It's also for aunts and uncles, um, any Other friend that wants to open up a 529 plan for your child uh, can do it and it would not disrupt their ability to get financial aid. And, you know, the important thing to remember about a 529 plan is that when you put money in, you do not get a tax break, but the money grows tax deferred. And when you pull the money out, it comes out tax exempt. So you're not taxed on that money when it comes out. So the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be. Sadly, I, I didn't follow this when my kids uh, were getting, you know, at the age of 10, you know, 8, 9, and 10. Um, I didn't put any money into a 529 plan, so I ended up having to pay quite a bit of money to send them to school. Let's say a 529 plan has 50000 bucks in it, and the tax can has been kicked down the road all this time. Okay, First semester kicks in. It's time to draw the money. And let's say the burden on that would be what? 15%, 10%, 20%? Typically, what is the tax burden on a $50,000 fund that I guess would need to be paid up front, right? The first, whatever's owed in taxes is paid, and then you, you draw the money for the first semester? Well, no, the, the money you know goes in after tax money goes in. So that money is never taxed again uh, because it's growing tax deferred. And when it comes out, it's tax exempt. Um, I think your question, you know, is a, is a great question is, you know, how are the taxes handled? And yeah. It's a very tax beneficial plan. And that's why so many people take advantage of it. Based on today's interest, how much could a fund grow over several years? Let's say somebody puts in, and I know it's a ballpark figure question, but let's say somebody puts in over 
a 15-year period, 20000 bucks in a fund. Uh, with today's interest rate, a 529 plan might grow by how much, would you say? Well, uh, I look at it from a total return standpoint because you're going to be putting it into growth and income. So let's just say that you're going to grow the money at 8% over time. That means it'll double every nine years. The way you do that is you take the number 72 and divide it by a rate of return. And whatever that answer is, that's how many years it'll take to double your money. Is 8% is 8% bless you. Is 8% a reasonable interest rate to expect? Yes, and you're saying interest rates and I'm telling total return interest rates is how much interest it's earning off the federal government and that number fluctuates uh, from time to time. Right now that's paying about 4%. So if you just went with 4%, you would be looking at 18 years to double your money. Why did you? Why did you use eight percent? Then help me understand that. Because eight percent is the growth in income. That's the growth of the stocks plus the income that it pays. Versus there we go. Just income more than just savings. So you're, you're talking about because the the five twenty nine college savings fund with these investment houses, it's put into the market so that it grows at a good rate. That, that's that's why you're saying that's, this. That's exactly correct. Ten four. So. Let me reintroduce our friend, internationally recognized expert in investments, Ed, as I lovingly call him, Ed the Big Butowski. We're talking about 529 college savings plans. Hey, great idea for the holidays, right? Start one up for the kiddos, maybe your kids or grandkids or or nieces, nephews, right? This would be a good way to start. Uh, This would be a perfect, I think it would be a perfect holiday gift for the kiddos. And I know they're not going to be very happy when they open up the envelope and say, what is this? <laughs> what is this? Hey, but this is, hey, this is for my kid. <laughs> but uh, I know that's, uh, in fact, my, my, I don't have any grandkids yet, but maybe I'll set, maybe I'll do that just to spite my daughter who, who's about to get engaged. Um, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Is there, yeah. is there an annual cap on the amount of cash you can throw into a 529? Uh, great question. There's an $80,000 limit on, on doing it, and you, but you have to space it out over a five-year period. So if you haven't given any money in five years, you can catch up by putting 80000 away. But it's about $16,000 a year uh, per year. And to start one, talk to people like you, right? Look for a financial advisor. That's the best way to do it, right? Yeah, uh, it, it is. I mean, we, you know, there is a reason that we exist. Um, you know, this year it's difficult for our job, but but there is a reason for us to give advice to people, and this is one of those reasons. I'll put in um, a quick mention. Shout out to David Barnes, Dave Barnes, an associate. That's where I started the five twenty nine for my wedding for my kids here in McAllen, over at uh, with Dave Barnes. Well, Ed, it's a pleasure, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday, friend, and keep in touch. That's uh, Ed, the big Butowski financial strategist. This is The Sergio Show.